straw on Chianti bottles, wine made by nuns, and bubbles with your pizza. This week, it's all about wine. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. If you like food and travel, you've found the right place. And this week, I thought we'd look back at some of my favorite conversations about wine. After all, we're winding down the holiday season, 2024 is here, and wine is a big part of many celebrations. Also, we're in the middle of winter, and a nice hearty glass of red wine might be just the thing to take the chill off. But first, if you like food and travel, please consider supporting Destination Eat Drink with a one-time or recurring contribution. Believe it or not, It's expensive to keep this little operation going between the equipment, the website costs, communication costs, it all adds up and your support is very greatly appreciated. To send me a couple of bucks, go to buymeacoffee.com slash destination eat drink and thank you very, very much. Okay, I'm ready for some wine from Croatia, from Italy, and even from Bolivia. So let's drink. Destination eat drink. Robin Giesling is a photographer who leads photography workshops in Florence, Italy. She's also written the book Wine Doors of Florence. I did not know that the uh, guilds were uh, were evaporated by the Medici family in the 1500s. Is this kind of a form of union busting? What was going on here? That, that's exactly how I explain them is, yeah, you can think of them as like a modern union and they were all... Uh, there was a separate guild for each kind of uh, artistry and uh, industry, if you will. So there was a silk guild, a wool guild, uh, an iron workers guild, a, and a winemakers guild. And they were all kind of very uh, familial in their uh, membership. Like you had to show ties to family and in history to, uh, to get to be able to be a member. And some of these more noble families that had either a a broader scope to their uh, family production that were like, hey, we can't get into these guilds that we have product for uh, without having to pay them, without having to uh, take a cut and and all of these things. How can we make more money? Senor Medici, how how can we help us make more money? And so uh, the guilds were dissolved. So this was because people were trying to break into the industry and slam the doors are shut i can't get in i can't be a winemaker i can't be a butcher i can't be a silk maker because these guilds are completely shut off to me for access medici's let's get rid of these and it's going to be wide open that's fascinating i had no idea that was going on in uh renaissance florence so these wine doors open up so that folks can sell their wine directly to consumers. D- describe what these wine doors look like for people who can't see them right now as we're talking. Sure. So uh, for, for the older set, uh, you probably recall the, 
the straw covered wine bottle that was from Italy that, you know, in the seventies, you'd stick your candle in and the Chianti put on the bottles. Table. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So th those are actually historic Chianti bottles though. That was part of uh, the way things were done because that shape and that uh, straw had a very specific purpose. Like if you can uh, Google the, uh, just Google the uh, Florentine fiasco, just like we use the word as, Oh, that's a great fiasco. The, 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 the word in Italian is fiasco, spelled exactly the same way. And so that's what the bottle is called. And that shape meant that like if you stacked four together on their bottoms, you could flip one fiasco over and put it on top. And the straw acted as um, Renaissance bubble wrap, if you will. So it protected <laughs> them from breaking. And then they could, uh, oh, there, that's the word, it's the, the caromato, C-A-R-R-O. M-A-T-T-O, the Caromato, and you could see hundreds of these fiaschi bottles stacked up, and that's how the Chianti was transported. So if they've done this production in the countryside and they've put it all in the fiasco, the little door is no taller than a fiasco bottle and is just about as wide as a fiasco bottle. So it's flat on the bottom and then just a little round door, like so any other like big building door you would see in Florence is round on the top, it's not, not two squares usually, it's usually round. And so you, they would have these little wooden doors that you would knock on, they would open the little door, there would be just enough space to take your money and to push that little bottle through. <laughs> Ingenious, right? I, I love yeah. the idea that this, this straw was used to transport the bottles. I didn't think it had a use. I just thought it was charming looking and, uh, you know, would be something fun to stick on the table. But they had a purpose. Of course, they had a purpose. So these wine doors are being used. Folks are, um, folks are getting their wine that way. The story that I heard was that it was kind of an early way of... Um, to create social distancing. In other words, if there was a plague going around, you would do this in order not for two people to come in close contact. Is there any truth to that story that I heard? I think since the, kind of what made these things, I'll say, break and become popular during COVID was that uh, there was one source found where someone was had written an entire book of uh, about all of the various plagues. And I've been sent all the articles and I've read all the articles and it's been kind of a, a journalistic game of telephone of watching <laughs> the facts morph and change. Um, so a lot of people in some of these articles have talked about the plague. And so the plague, when we think of the plague, that's 1300. That's too early. 200 years earlier. Right. And then so there was a second round of plague uh, about this time. But they and so some of these articles say they were created for the plague, but that's not true. They were already in existence when this second round of plague came through and it was just conveniently used at that time. They're like, oh, hey, great, this is perfect. We don't have to see anyone that may be sick, but still, you know, wine was you know, much like beer in Germany. Wine was still cleaner drinking than the water. You were healthier drinking the wine than whatever might be in the water. So wine was still very much a, a needed product and not a luxury product uh, at that time. So yes, they were taking their little door and they were, they were putting their money in the scoop uh, and then taking their scoop back out and washing their scoop with vinegar to uh, avoid any contagion that they might have. So it was actually also pretty fascinating that they had an understanding of how contagion was passed without really even understanding what uh, germs were. You brought up an interesting point, Robin, the fact that 
the water really wasn't safe to drink. So folks would drink wine in Italy, at least, would drink wine instead. And I read somewhere that people would drink up to a liter of wine a day. And I'm like, what a wine paradise that must have been. That's true. But we also have to think about that modern modern winemaking has increased the alcohol content significantly of what they were drinking then. They were literally just crushing grapes, like how wine was, say, invented was the Greeks had put a bunch of grapes in a terracotta pot, put a lid on it, and then those natural yeasts that were on the skins started the fermentation process. So when they took the lid off and got their grapes out and they just had this juice in the bottom, they're like, oh, hey, I got a little buzz. (laughs) But that might have been half the alcohol content that we have now with modern winemaking. So drinking a liter then is is probably not as exciting as it sounds. (laughs) So so we're talking not 12 to 14 percent, maybe six to seven percent, maybe a strong uh, equivalent to like a strong beer. Um, yeah. So, okay. So th- this is going on during the Renaissance. You've got all these wine doors. Folks are selling wine directly from the makers to the consumers. When did they fall into disuse? There was actually quite a few used, and that's part of the what I'm going back to research is kind of like we still don't know when the first one was cut. We don't know which building had the very first one, uh, as well as just their decline was even as recent as the early 1900s. Uh, so I think it wasn't even until World War One that they probably were stopped being used and just got walled up. So 400 years they were using these wine doors. I remember when I first visited Florence, I I didn't really know about these things, but I remember seeing them and I thought they kind of almost look like a nave that you would see in a church because a lot of them will have like a picture of Mary or something in them. They, they, some of them have taken on a religious overtone, but I didn't think anything of them. I just thought it was just another religious icon in Florence. Um, and then the pandemic comes and these wine, uh, wine doors start coming back into use. Is that, is that how they started uh, using wine doors again or was it before the pandemic? There was one restaurant uh, that started to use theirs again uh, before the pandemic. Now, there's also uh, Vivoli Gelateria in uh, in Florence, just very famous gelateria. Excellent gelato, by the way, if, if you're <laughs> ever there. Uh, theirs was always open. And um, like I say, I started photographing in about 2013. And then um, there's a preservation association that started about two years later. But theirs was always open. So when I found the one book that I could find on these from the library in Florence. And I went there and I, I said, you, do you know what these are? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we we know what it is. But theirs was hidden until the Great Flood of 66. Oh. Theirs had been com- completely walled up. So it was kind of half and half. Many were destroyed in the Great Flood and many were uh, kind of refound in the flood. They said, yeah, it was completely plastered over. And then when the flood had gone way above Uh, their little door when they're having to restructure their walls they found this little hole and so they restored it now they did not serve out of it at all they literally just had a plant stuck in it and i was like (laughs) i'm like okay it wasn't even a real plant i'm a plastic plant and um so theirs was always open and then when i started doing my first round of photography of them i could see where some had access on the other side but were just completely ignored and disused and then so by the time Babay, the restaurant that has theirs now, uh, came about, uh, I had already photographed it. And when I photographed it, there was no restaurant there. It was completely empty and abandoned. And uh, so when I heard that they were uh, serving out of it, I was fascinated and thrilled. 
And then with the pandemic, uh, obviously, uh, the, the way the restrictions were in, in Italy, you couldn't even, you could barely be on the street, much less uh, go into a restaurant. So those that had one readily available started using them again, like Vivoli started serving. Thank goodness they were serving their cases of gelato out this little door, so they nobody have to come in. Right. Uh, then a couple other restaurants have uh, that were walled up on my last photography tour uh, have dug them out and restored them for service. Shafik Meji is a travel writer whose new memoir is called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. He tells me about some wine made by nuns. One of the stories that I loved reading about Shafik in your book was the nuns of Madras Clarisas, um, because I love it when the nuns make baked goods to sell to, uh, you know, supplement their incomes. And this is a case where they're selling cookies and cakes and also selling their wine. Uh, tell me about these nuns. And did you get to try any of their wine? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, th- th- this this was kind of in in some ways quite a small moment on my on my you know my my many years of traveling in in, in Bolivia. But it stuck with me because it's such a kind of charming charming moment, really. Um, so it's it's in the uh the the hillside town of Coahuico, which is at the end of um uh the world's most dangerous road. I'm using air quotes for the world's most dangerous road there. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's a resort town. It was once a gold mining center and it's in this beautiful, um, kind of bucolic, um, uh, location overlooking rolling hills, balmy weather. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely place just to go and, uh, you know, hang out for the weekend and go swimming and go hiking. Um, but if you go there and, you know, and lots and lots of travelers do, you've got to go to the, uh, the local conference convent as you say it's the it's the madres clarices which is just opposite like a little bar um and <laughs> uh you know you 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 go down a little flight of flight of steps and there's a little buzzer uh on on the wall and you 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 ring it you you wait for a moment and then a, and a door opens and there's a small counter and uh you know when, when i visited there was a uh you know a, a beaming elderly nun with a real shock of white hair um, you know, we had a little bit of a chat and uh, I said, oh, I've, I've, I've heard you sell uh, wonderful cakes and biscuits. And she said, oh, you, you know, you've come you've come a bit too late. We've sold we've sold out, but we've got some homemade wine. So um, so sadly, I, ne- I never got to take the, taste the cakes and the biscuits, which by reputation are absolutely delicious. But the uh, but the wine was uh, yeah, the wine, the wine was uh, was was delicious, I have to say. And I think particularly with, you know, when I when I uh, uh Drank it with uh, beautiful, beautiful views as well of the the kind of the subtropical, uh, the subtropical Yungas region. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was it was a charming moment. And uh, yeah, anyone that anyone that passes through Coroico, uh, which is a lovely place just to kick back for a few days, yeah, go and visit the nuns. Uh, you won't be disappointed. The wine always tastes better when you've got a beautiful view or a nice atmosphere. I think you you've mentioned the wine a couple of uh, different times in a couple of different places. I. I, I don't think I've seen Bolivian wine in my local liquor store, but they're right next. Bolivia is right next door to a couple of big wine-producing countries, so it makes sense that there would have the proper terrain. They've got hilly climates where they could grow vines. Is is there a lot of wine drunk in Bolivia? Do the locals like it, or does this go out to other countries? 
Yeah, so so you know the, 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 there is there is certainly a there is certainly a local market for, for for wine in Bolivia, not quite as big as in neighbouring Chile or Argentina, uh, and there is also a wine industry um, in the in 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 the country. It's much much smaller than its in its neighbours. Very little of it is, is is exported, and certainly very little of it is exported. Kind of you know beyond beyond South America, sadly. Um, but a lot of the wine is really really good. Um, you know, um, inevitably Bolivia has some of the highest. Uh, vineyards on earth you know bolivia is a high altitude country sure, so it has sure. an awful lot of highest things in 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 the world in uh in, in its borders but it has um yeah and and that region is, is is very close to argentina you know the the kind of the the, the so the northern uh Salta Capajate region of Argentina, which is which is one of the big wine producing areas. So it produces good reds and good whites as well. And there's also um a slightly smaller wine industry um over towards the, the east of the country. There's there's, there's um a you know, like another town called Samaipata, which is, you know, it feels like heaven on earth really it's a very friendly beautiful place that uh you know you 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 end up going there for a few days and you end up spending a month uh-huh. um but but in that region um they, they've also got some kind of small-scale vineyards um but you know they're but they're, but they're producing increasingly increasingly good wine and every time every time i visit you know every, every couple of years when i go back and i've been traveling since traveling to bolivia since 2004 you know the wine the bolivian wine has become more available the quality of it's improved, so it's it, it's absolutely something to uh, to check out while you're there. The trouble is, it's often a little bit more expensive than uh, you know wine from, uh, from 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 Chile and Argentina. But uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Katie Parla is an award-winning author, podcaster, and foodie travel guide based in Italy. Her latest book is Food of the Italian Islands. She talks about pairing wine with pizza in Rome. Speaking of combinations, in the U.S., typically we have beer and pizza. In Rome, would we have beer with our pizza or would we have wine with our pizza? Or is it up for grabs at this point? There's always the option of both. I think customarily people always go for beer. Um, When from like a sort of technical professional pairing standpoint, a very mineral-driven, crisp white wine, or even a sparkling wine, or even champagne are considered like the ideal pairings for a margarita. And then you'd switch up if you have something a little bit more substantial as a topping. Um, Like if you have sausage or something, you might want to go for uh, like a light-bodied red, something like that. But I would say, I know it's like, it's very, very indulgent, but champagne, like a great champagne with a fantastic margarita is like a 10 out of 10. Um, The good news is you don't have to like do that. You can also get like a really delicious um, naturally made Prosecco, which is going to, which is not going to be filtered. um, And so it's going to have kind of like the yeasty bready notes uh, that really blend very well with, with pizza, something from uh, like Casa Belfi or something like that. You're, you're kind of blowing my mind right now, Katie, because I can't tell you how many pizzas I've had in my lifetime because it's uncountable, but I've never even considered having champagne or a sparkling wine, Prosecco, Cava, any of that with pizza. It never even entered my mind. And now that you say it, I'm like, of course, that would be a great combination. Bubbles are always a good idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's that's going to be the new mantra. Bubbles <laughs> are always a good idea. <laughs> Put that on your merch. <laughs>
Cameron Hewitt is a travel writer for Rick Steves Europe. He's written guidebooks to several countries in Europe, and he tells me about wine in Croatia. What about the wine? That's another thing that I love about Croatia. I remember from my visits to Croatia, especially in the Istrian Peninsula, the uh, the wine was very rustic. And I don't use that term as a pejorative at all. It just means, you know, it wasn't as uh, refined um, as some other wines that you might get. So the quality could be very good, but, you know, you might get uh, a little more tannins than you might in some other kinds of wines. Uh, what was your experience enjoying wines on this most recent trip? What was the quality like, Cameron? I mean, I think the quality of Croatian wines is, is outstanding, and they're not very well known internationally because they just don't export very much. And just because they don't have that international brand or awareness, but I think actually, especially even just in the last, I'd been there maybe three or four years ago. And even in that time, I see the wine industry developing at, a, at an astonishing pace. I mean, again, going back 20 years, 30 years, um, during the Yugoslav period, a lot of wine production was collectivized. And so everything, all of the kind of unique distinctions between different wines were, were much together. And it was all about kind of big, you know, big industrial production. And Bulk wine. this is something that's taken... Yeah, but it's taken a quarter century, but they've, you know, slowly people are going back and reclaiming a family, you know, either people going back to their their own heritage or sometimes people bringing in know-how from other parts of the world and deciding they want to build their winery in, in Croatia somewhere. So I have some amazing experiences with Croatian wines. There's a, a region just north of Dubrovnik, and it's this long, skinny peninsula called Pelješac. Pelješac is the name of it, and it's an hour and a half drive from Dubrovnik. Um, and that has some of the best wines in Croatia. And it's I have a, a local contact in Dubrovnik who actually runs a wine bar there. And he took me on a day tour up to Peljašac. And we already had in our guidebook several great places there. And he took me to just as many new ones that were either new or new to him or, you know, had kind of emerged and evolved since the last visit I was there. And I just was blown away at the quality of the wines and also the care with which these vintners are, are approaching their craft. And some of them, there's one guy, and I'm sorry, I could look it up, but I, I forget the name of it. But one guy, um, he's really an academic. He went and studied wine production and he makes great wines, but he also, he's kind of gone back to some heritage wines. Like there's a kind of wine that basically hasn't been made in Croatia in hundreds of years. And he kind of tracked down through genetics, you know, the original grapes that were used for this wine. And he's he's planted some of these grapes, figured out a way to 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 track down some something that's very similar or even with with hybridization he's created some um not new but kind of trying to recreate some old vines and some of the stuff he's doing is just really exciting that is so cool i love when they try to resurrect some of the whether it's a heritage vegetable or whether it's one of these old grapes that has pretty much been forgotten for uh forever because either it's hard to grow or you know people it's fallen out of favor for whatever reason. So I'm really happy to hear this. And the other thing that I notice when you're telling me that story, Cameron, is how Jones do you get when you discover a new place? That must be like uncovering a, a little diamond for you when you find a place that you didn't even, you're not going back to a place and just saying, okay, check mark, this place is still good. This is a brand new place for you. That must be awesome. Yeah, it's 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 a really fun and satisfying part of my work. And you're right, a lot of what I'm doing, some trips I go and I'm actually writing a new guidebook. So it's all new scouting. And that's in some ways, it's more work, but it's also more fun. But most of my trips are updating. So, you know, 80% of my time, 90% of my time is spent just checking what's there. 
but I'm always on the lookout for new discoveries. And this is a case where I had a little extra time in Dubrovnik and I said, you know, I could take, I could take a day at the beach or I could uh, go out with this friend of mine, Sasha, and he could, he could take me to some interesting new wineries and make these discoveries. And it's really gratifying for me because I find a place like, like these, these many wineries that I just am going to be putting in the book for next year. And then for years to come, it's very satisfying knowing a lot of travelers who otherwise wouldn't have thought to go there or wouldn't have known where to go if they were in the region. Uh, I often get feedback or I bump into people who are who are using my book and knowing that it'll have that concrete sort of that tangible of a impact on people's trips is extremely gratifying. It's you know, it's worth all the hard work easily because I I know how many people are going to discover this place thanks to that work. And the people who are recommended in the book, these 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 you know vintners who deserve a little more attention are going to get a little more attention now. And that's also they they work hard and they deserve they deserve a bigger customer base a little more attention than they've been getting. And so that's it's fun to be a part of that equation too. Okay, that's Cameron Hewitt. His latest book is his memoir, The Temporary European, Lessons and Confessions of a Professional Traveler. I've got a link to Cameron's website as well as all my guests in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash ded266. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, Darlie Newman returns to the show. She tells me about the new season of her TV show, Travels with Darlie on PBS, and all the great food she had in a place you might not consider for a trip. So don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a new story about an amazing bar in a 16th century building in Beja, Portugal. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also just posted a brand new video about some famous dishes from the biggest little state in the Union, Rhode Island. It's a delicious food crawl through an underrated place. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. And while you're there, you can also support Destination Eat Drink by clicking on the coffee icon in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen or by going to buymeacoffee.com slash DestinationEatDrink and thank you very much. Wishing you a happy and prosperous 2024. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla, a guy who's been working on pairing scotch and pizza. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.